This podcast is sponsored by Jabra Enhance. How are your hearing aids sounding now? A little tinny. Okay, two seconds. With Jabra Enhance Select's premium package, better hearing doesn't happen in a doctor's office. It happens at home. All done remotely from initial testing to adjustments. How are they sounding now? Fantastic. You get the same advanced hearing aid technology and professional support you expect from a clinic at a fraction of the cost. And if you have any issues, we'll make adjustments seven days a week. No charge. Oh, you people are wonderful. Our premium package includes hearing aids, three years of follow-up care, plus a three-year warranty with loss and damage coverage, and a 100-day money-back guarantee. I hear better than I ever thought possible. And now, for a limited time, save $100 when you order Jabra Enhanced Select Hearing Aids with promo code PODCAST. Go to jabraenhanced.com and our promo code PODCAST to save. jabraenhanced.com code PODCAST. For eligible individuals 18 and older in 50 United States and Washington, D.C. with mild to moderate hearing loss only, audiology team may not be able to program hearing aids for some types of hearing loss. See website for details and important safety information. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Right, today is December the 28th, and my guest is Max Borders. Max is an author and public intellectual. He wrote books like The Social Singularity and After Collapse. He's also the executive director at Social Evolution, a nonprofit organization dedicated to solving social problems through innovation. Today, we're going to have a conversation about social organization, decentralization, and how to enhance human flourishing. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Max, what are you working on right now and why does it matter? I am currently, I'm working on wrapping up a book that I'd say is an in, adjacent to the social singularity and after collapse, but frames the issue in terms of the American project, starting with the American Revolution. A lot of my work seems quite abstract and disconnected from any kind of historical moment or anything like that, or historical continuity. With this book, I wanted to really ground the idea of decentralization and the consent of the governed in something that Americans in particular, but it has a cosmopolitan, a cosmopolitan thesis in any case, but particularly something that Americans could appreciate as part of their history, their roots, as it were, because otherwise it just seems like sort of an empty anti-authoritarianism. If you're not careful grounding it in something uh, people can latch onto in terms of their national narrative. That book is called Underthrow, at least tentatively. We'll see if that remains the title when it comes out. Great. So we're going to have a conversation about your work, some of your books. Anything else before we start? Anything else you'd like listeners to know about you and your background? Yeah, I think a recent, something I've recently became, become very interested in <clears throat> is I've been working this in this space for a long time, competitive governance, um, decentralized systems, and the idea of finding ways to break up power centers that are, that have either outsized influence or are oppressive in some way. I feel like I've been working in parallel with a fellow named Balaji Srinivasan, who whose work, the network state has obviously gotten a lot of attention and boy, am I glad for that because he really 
details the a potential, at least theoretical mechanism for establishing networks across geographies that in a sense decouple governance from terra firma, which means that some jurisdiction can exist in the cloud or at least the moral political locus of activity can begin in the cloud and eventually descend to earth as it were to attach to certain what he calls archipelagos in the earth. And eventually these would have diplomatic recognition. It's a, it's a big audacious theory, and I, but I think it is strategically one path that I've been trying to, I've been working on as well, but particularly the moral political aspects of that path. The ought, he's doing the is, how it could be done, I'm doing the ought that it should be done. And together I think we make a fantastic if but unwitting team I would like to begin working on the idea of a, a shadow constitution and build a shadow society around that. And that's part of the network state idea. My sense is that if you can, if you have an object of common desire and, and a way to coalesce in solidarity around something symbolic, a new constitution would be such a thing. Can you give listeners a primer? on competitive governance and why is it important? Put it this way. Imagine from childhood, and I'm not sure if this was the case for you in Europe, but growing up in the United States, we learned that monopolies are bad things, right? If you have a giant company that dominates an industry, there's no competition. You tend to get a degradation in quality, fewer choices, and the price is up to the monopolist. Right. This degradation in quality due to a lack of choices infects governments as well. I happen to live in a great big monopoly, despite 50 other subsidiary states in the United States. The United States federal government's outsized power sits atop this arrangement in a way that you don't get the kind of dynamics of competitive governance that you might get like in the Canton system in Switzerland, for example. The Cantons are actually as strong as the federal government in Switzerland. And that is an important feature of Swiss stability and prosperity. In the United States, we don't have that. Our federal government is, an, is essentially an empire to the rest of the world and internally it is as well. And its imperial ambitions know no bounds, no bounds whatsoever. What are we gonna do about that? So currently you see a dynamic in the United States where people are moving in droves, droves to my state, Texas. I live in Texas. People from California are moving here in droves because of the sort of the policies of California have become too onerous. The, their businesses are leaving, opportunities are leaving along with other people because they find the business climate, the living situation, the prices, whatever that is that you value, if you can find it better in another jurisdiction and it's easy to cross those boundaries, as it is in the United States, because we have interstate travel and so on. Yeah, people will migrate. You saw the same thing in the European Union as people left sort of the Eastern Bloc countries a while ago to settle in places like Britain and the, the UK, when the UK was under that umbrella before Brexit, as well as in places like Germany, um, the richer countries in the EU. This dynamic of competitive governance is certainly at play all the time. I believe that in increasing options, opportunities to exit and enter new systems, we can get more competitive dynamics that make any given individual jurisdiction compete for human souls. That is happening and it will continue to happen, but particularly if we can 
devise new jurisdictions, which is extraordinarily hard to do in this environment. Yeah, sort of it's that idea that, and or insight more than an idea, that governments are providing a service to you, right, at a certain cost. So they provide the laws, police, security, maybe they're negotiating on your behalf, they give you passports and identity documents and things like that, but often they do way more and often their price is too high at very low quality. That theory that they're local monopolies. And it's also that the switching costs are very high. It's not that easy to go over to a different jurisdictions. You have to leave friends and family behind, it might be a different culture or a different language. And it requires a lot of very detailed and local knowledge. Many of these local monopolies or governments basically have a free pass to do whatever they want. And the idea of competitive governance is tied to reducing switching costs and providing more options. One question I've been always asking myself, and I haven't found a solution yet, is what's the model that makes people move? So even though there are a lot of things bad that are bad, people are often not moving, right? So if it's really bad, like in the former Eastern European countries or in East Germany, your life is threatened. That might be one big reason, but people don't move to get a much better deal, right? So for example, I lived for a while in Mexico, especially during with a remote job in the United States and a big salary, you get, you can reduce your cost of living by 80%. You get much better medical treatments and things like that. And I know now tons of options, but still it seems like such a long shot for people to move, even though sometimes they're like complaining, oh, education is so expensive, healthcare is so expensive and this and that, but they're not making the move. <laughs> Well, it's, it's like your, your mom, your, your mom and dad mm -hmm. live somewhere and you love them. They're aging. You want to take care of them. I may in the next couple of years, leave Texas to go back to my original home in the Carolinas because I have family there and family is certainly a strong draw. You do have a quite a large population of expats and digital nomads who are, you know, floating around the world, some living in Portugal, some living in Puerto Rico, depending on the kind of climate for whether it be cryptocurrencies and whether those will be <clears throat> regulated or out of existence by central banks, or if there are little pockets of activity that allow these to flourish. But there could be other reasons too. Weather, just sometimes developing countries are much cheaper to live in. And if you can earn a check from a major developed country uh, who, whose corporate headquarters are in that country, but then live in, as you say, a developing country like Mexico or Central America or something like that, it's a really good deal. It affords you the opportunity to save a lot of money and then perhaps move back to the more expensive locale or, or live out your days quite comfortably. Sometimes it's political. There are political refugees or people who want to, to not evade taxes, but to live in a situation where they're not as heavily taxed. We saw a flight, for example, when the French changed their top marginal rate to 80%, I think it was about five or 10 years ago, you had a flight of rich French folks from France to surrounding areas and places like Liechtenstein, Luxembourg and others were happy to pick them up. So people are looking after their money too, but, some, but that can't always be the case. The idea of a French person wanting to leave French culture and, their, and French countrymen is a difficult proposition and it's hard to understand what anybody's <clears throat> internal subjective states are for how they make that calculation. I think if there were a model, it would be a weak model in the sense that it's just really an internal 
understanding of what people value and disvalue and the aggregate weightings of all of those within a person is going to bring about that decision. Whether someone's leaving for ideological reasons or family, contact with family, those are always difficult questions, but they turn on circumstances of time and place. So I don't think there's any really ready model, but I do think as our, our legacy states become much more totalitarian, or let me just pull back from that, authoritarian, okay, that there will be more of a, an effect of a vice tightening, and you will find more and people more and more people eager to leave those jurisdictions. I think we're seeing that today. What, for example, with, with Prospera in Honduras, you've been involved in that project. It's a, I think it's an excellent project. A lot of really great people involved in it. And Prospera, I think, is billing itself not only as a beautiful place in paradise, which is obvious just from seeing pictures of it, but also a place where people who want to get out of the, the medical regulatory state, which has completely been captured by legacy industries in, for example, the United States, if people want to try different kinds of new therapies and they don't want to take 10, 15 years to get something through the regulatory process for the way drugs operate these days, they may opt to go down there and offer their, offer their medical services in a different context with lighter regulations. Prospera certainly fits the bill in this regard. Yeah, for sure. What's the DOS, the more democratic operating system, and what's wrong with it? Uh, the idea there is to everybody, maybe not every one of your listeners, but certainly listeners as old as I remember DOS, which is a command prompt in early, early operating systems, I think Microsoft. And that the idea of the DOS operating system as a precursor to Windows or anything like that, it's just something that's old and that people, they wanted to cling to it for a long time because it was familiar. And even though different operating systems were starting to be formed, it took a lot, a long time for a lot of people to let go of DOS. Well, it just so happens that our democratic operating system is the same way. Our democratic operating system in the United States, or for that matter, in, in various European countries in the EU, they share certain features that allow them to become not only quite buggy, but not very useful and not running very many apps. Uh, as it happens in the United States, the democratic operating system, DOS, runs two apps, the red app and the blue app. And that's all you got. <laughs> and so you get people who are forced by civic shaming into this, this duopoly that essentially divides and conquers its people by pushing them into a kind of partisan team sports when the victors are never either side, but rather favored corporations or special interests or actors in the deep state. Those are the ones who benefit from DOS the most, not the people, neither left nor right. And so I use this metaphor of DOS, the democratic operating system, to try to show how just to, ask, to, to prompt the question in readers' minds, wouldn't it be great if we could upgrade our social operating systems and have a lot more governance apps a lot more ways of instantiating different kinds of rules that more closely comport with your conception of the good, whatever that might be. Could be more progressive, more socialist, could be a kibbutz, it could be hyper-capitalist, it could be whatever it is, and could be dedicated to mutual aid where you have people donate to a treasury and then together 
find ways to disperse funds to those who need it most, but it's a mutual aid arrangement. There are just all kinds of apps that could be run that, but for the existence of the Leviathan state that we currently live under. And so I, I want to use that DOS metaphor to really unpack the fact that we're, we're living in a system that is essentially caught in amber. Uh, that yeah, is until yeah. it collapses. Yeah, yeah. When I attempt a critique, I often use the phrase top-down centralized government because that's something that most people don't like. Because <laughs> when you start with democracy, that's something that people do like, right? But the critique that applies is democratic features can sometimes be good, but I think the big problem really is that the entities are too large that are operating under that system, right? So you can fork them to arrive at better and more optimal local solutions. So I like read that metaphor from software. I mean, imagine you have one large code base with several hundred or thousand people are the developers and they need to justify their decision from like millions of other people. You wouldn't be able to develop and deploy and ship your product very fast, nor would you be able to fix bugs very quickly. So it makes more sense to have local forks from that large yeah. code base. And this is really, as I mentioned before, the sort of dream I have, and it's very early yet, of getting a whole bunch of really smart people to create a shadow constitution. So for me, as an American, there's a lot to recommend about the current constitution. It's just not being enforced. And for me, in, in many respects, a new shadow constitution would be a fork to the code. And its signatories would be proto-citizens, I guess you could say, even better, proto-customers. I know that sounds terribly bourgeois, but proto-customers for membership in a kind of a society where you could choose your governance, choose your own governance. And people moving together around a new constitution, that constitutional order would only be able to persist in time if it were good enough to prevent defectors to other constitutional forks or other forks, legal code forks, if you like to, to continue with that metaphor. But the open source software movement shows just how you can get constituencies around different forks to the code. There are a lot of people who swear by Bitcoin Satoshi vision, say they should never have uh, introduced second layer solutions, that you should always have bigger blocks. For the Bitcoiner geeks out there, this was a debate around 2016, 2017 that got resolved by a couple of forks. The first was Bitcoin Cash, the second was Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. Whatever you think about these three different forks, it looks like right now BTC, the original code base that has continued to grow and add a second layer called the Lightning Network, is winning in this race among the forks. But who knows, it could be that one of these other forks toppled it in some respect. Same with Ethereum. Ethereum has forked a couple of times and some of the older forks, like there's a fork of Ethereum that still deals with proof of work, but everybody, almost all the developers in the community went to the proof of stake model. You get the idea. I hope the listeners do as well. We can think of our legal code as being this way. And in fact, the law, the best law is produced by people willing to live by it. So I'm very much into the common law, but the idea that we, the best law is going to come from the institutions that we build together and live by together. 
that's going to produce the best law, not power, not the powerful, not having it imposed on you from, as you put it, centralized top-down powers. But that's what we live in right now. Yeah, I agree. And I think you can convince many people by using that software metaphor, right? We can, you know, different software languages can peacefully coexist, right? And no one would argue, oh, you need one, this one Leviathan who forces everyone to speak the same or use the same language. But I can imagine someone arguing, and it's, I think, a very deep question. What about the territorial or the physical nature of political entities, right? So political entities or people are situated in physical space, right? So, and physical space is zero sum, right? In the internet and software, that's clearly positive sum, right? You can have multiple entities coexisting without stepping on each other's toes. In the physical world, you be on each other's toes, right? So how can polycentric governance apply in the physical world? Like how can, or in other words, does geography matter for politics? Do borders matter? They do, they do in some respects. And I think we have to absolutely acknowledge that. If, for example, a population in some geography were gonna be attacked by a foreign invader, it makes sense in some respects that the patrols around that area, the defense capabilities are associated with that territory to protect the people in that territory. So one of the distinctions I have made in the past and I do in the social singularity is that of territorial goods versus non-territorial goods. A lot of what people think of as territorial goods are not. For example, health insurance. In the United States, you have to live, you can only buy health insurance in the state you live in, right? Because there are all of these regulatory aspects of the individual states that apply, as well as the federal government, but the individual states also have their own set of regulations built on top for the insurance industry. And so it is impossible for me, outside of a few exceptions, to buy health insurance outside of the state of Texas. Okay, there are exceptions, but suffice it to say, for most people, you have to buy health insurance within your jurisdiction. But we know that's not necessary. I think all of us know that, know that it's not necessary to buy something like health insurance within a certain jurisdiction. Now the actuarial data and such associated with my jurisdiction might change the price for me, but there's no reason I couldn't do business with, with an insurance company in Utah, say, okay, it, but for the heavy regulatory state. Now, that being said, there are certain things that, that are I think one could say are territorial goods. It is difficult for a lot of people to imagine a system of private roadways, for example, or at least the administration of those roadways could be private, but access in and out of them should be viewed as an open commons. I think a lot of people have difficulty imagining that. And again, police protection and other kinds of things seem to be territorial in nature. If a cop controls my particular neighborhood, he or she is not patrolling the, a neighborhood in California, obviously. So there are certain kinds of goods and services that we might argue fit into one of these categories of territorial or non-territorial. That being said, the nature of those industries recommends which category they go in, not 
some deliberative process, right? So it would be silly for the for some deliberative body to determine, okay, police, fire, this, that is a certain kind of good or service and, you know, national security, health insurance, and this and that is not. I believe that entrepreneurs can find a way to serve customers and serve them better. And that will determine what is linked to territory or not better than any other kind of consideration. But politics is hard to get rid of. It is, yeah, it is, it's, goes right around the sun with us. I agree. I think another way of potentially analyzing that question is that natural monopoly term, right? So even Milton Friedman, Adam Smith spoke of natural monopolies and Milton Friedman believed that roads, for example, are local monopolies. And in hindsight, it's probably wrong, right? We can have private provision of roads it exists and it's possible. So the question <clears throat> is what public goods or goods that governments provide or territorial goods are natural monopolies, right? Because if you have competition for these goods, then, you know, you have the right incentives that we want to see. So um, police clearly is not a natural monopoly, right? Because we do have a great variety of competing private security forces, right? I think one where people outright say it's a natural monopoly is law for a certain jurisdiction. We also see, yes, but it's divided into, it can be divided into smaller jurisdictions, like for property holders, right? I guess I'm not sure where I'm going with that question. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's an important question. Look, in, in between states in the U.S., and this can seem arbitrary, but it can seem somewhat reasonable. You can step foot in one state and, and have a relationship with a 16-year-old. You step over in the next state and they'll put you in jail for that. So there are state-based age of consent laws This that currently have to do with, and there are also deal breakers, I think, for a lot of people that they see it as some timeless universal that the law should be at. Do you want to agree to become a member of a civil, a civic association that controls your speech. For example, I think most people of either the market process would say no, or would soon discover that they don't want to renew their membership in some civil association that limited their speech. Likewise, if you had a civil, a civil association that made it legal to have some sort of ritual sex with, with young people, or something like that, that would be a deal breaker that justified the existence of a greater Leviathan power. Those are tough questions, but what's interesting is, is that there are not many of those kind of questions for which the Leviathan powers currently in existence are willing to go to war. So the question is, if those are internal to some greater jurisdiction or greater land mass, such as say the United States or the European Union, what, what are the limits to the kinds of, to the kinds of legal provisions for X the masses are willing to tolerate if they believe that a superordinate power should hold sway? Those are all tough questions. And I say, my answer to that is the existence of tough questions and edge cases does not justify overwhelming authority, the likes of which we have now. It's just not in the same realm. I agree. And every time yeah. we get to the, it's a tough question debates, 
where you exchange ideas and theories, I come back to, or, or I try to put myself in the situation, maybe we're like doctors in the middle ages, in medieval times, right? And their knowledge about the human body, right? And at times where we were using bloodletting to heal people. And so maybe <laughs> we're at a stage right now where our knowledge of social institutions and mechanisms is similar, right? We just don't know better because we haven't run the experiments, right? So I think we should try to apply the scientific methods and have entrepreneurs run experiments. What different social ways of coordination work best, right? Yeah, so the social that, coordination, mm -hmm. that, this, is the way, this is the way people justify such extensive powers. They'll use emergencies like wars or pandemics or, and so on to justify essentially what is, I would call, sinoforming the world, right? China being the best example of an attempt to lock down the population in order to prevent the, the spread of disease. And it is currently unraveling. It failed miserably. It failed in the United States. It failed in Europe. And yet there was this global consensus among authorities, all of whom were in cahoots. They were, I wouldn't call it a, I wouldn't call it a conspiracy more than it was during the pandemic, a kind of global group thing that there was only one way to deal with this pandemic. And it was to keep people locked down until these vaccines, these terribly rushed ineffective vaccines could get to market. Now, nobody knew that they were going to be ineffective the way they were. And in fact, I was a cheerleader for speedily getting them to market or getting them to the people, which I now regret. So I'll admit that. But what we got was a great experiment and top-down power to, for pandemic and popular control, and it failed. And people died. People died of the pandemic, and there were ramifications to the economy to people's health and well-being that were a direct consequence of those lockdowns yeah. and to some extent the vaccines but in acknowledging yeah. that there was a vast global control mechanism that didn't work and that is there's a silver lining in that i think we need to recognize yeah that's a point that i often bring up when people like to bring up localism as an alternative and that surely sounds good. If you make political decisions, make them on a smaller scale. But I think we're still running into the problem of incentives, right? So the way we currently run municipalities or cities or any kinds of political entities, governments, is basically like nonprofits, right? So as a government official or public servant, you have downside but no upside, right? So there is no real incentive for you to try something else right during a pandemic or whatever, the only, you have a much bigger incentive to protect yourself against downside risk, right? So if everyone else is doing the same thing, you can always say that's how all these other big countries with all these experts do it. And you also, you saw also the other part of that. It's like once, for example, the Danish, the Scandinavian countries, is that these, that the vaccines, for example, weren't what they were cracked up to be and that they were only benefiting a certain stratum, age stratum, namely the elderly and the infirm, they completely, they said, no, we're not going to mandate this for young people and children. In fact, there could be a net harm to this group. But it seemed like the first thing that anyone wanted to do at the beginning of the pandemic was copycat. 
So localism didn't help at first. So you're absolutely right on that. But as the narrative structures and the data started coming in from different countries who were not completely captured by the, uh, the pharmaceutical and industrial complex in this country, then, yeah, we started to see evidence and data coming out of Israel, Dan Denmark, and other places that revealed the problematic public health message that I think is really we've lost all faith in those institutions now. And I don't see that as such a bad thing. I do understand the need for coordination for solving collective action problems. And I am not in convinced at all that the exercise of authoritarian power is the only way to resolve a collective action problem. I would like to talk about a couple of concepts that I think are recurring that you use in your books quite often, and I think are just very important for listeners to understand or very interesting to talk about. One of them is social evolution. What is social evolution? There's two, two connotations for it. Social evolution is a concept that some evolutionary biologists believe happened in human communities that human beings have the ability to evolve as groups, not just through individual mechanisms that are traditional Darwinian mechanisms. For me, social evolution, it plays on that a little bit, but it's really just how societies can or should change. And the primary vector of that change for me, uh, for what I'm interested in, in my organization, social evolution, it, I call subversive innovation, okay? Subversive innovation is a kind of innovation that allows people to form, rapidly form new constituency groups around new social technologies or governance technologies. Those social technologies can be anything from cryptocurrency and blockchain. Obviously, that was a catalyzing event for me in my life. And really pushed me into more deeply into this space, but also my work. And I did some early papers with the Seasteading Institute with Joe Quirk and others to really talk about Max Marty, some other folks that were working there originally, to talk about the kind of legal and business substrate for seasteading, which is another way of describing this process of a competitive governance. The idea of subversive innovation is how can you, and I hate to use the word disrupt because the disruption has been so abused since its original intended usage from Clayton Christensen. But in the Christiansonian sense and in other senses, disruption is how can we upset the status quo order that is outlived its usefulness or is failing to serve people as it should, if it's trying to become concerned with serving itself, which our empire, of course, has. The financial system, for example, is, is run by central banks and a cartel of financial institutions that orbit it. And of course, they are serving their own interests and the collusion with government officials who, of course, want to spend endless amounts of money that the treasury doesn't have. Subversive innovation would be a cryptocurrency that has a great measure of protection against these powerful authorities and allow people an option and exit. I refer you to the idea of exit voice and loyalty from, from the famous old Al Albert Hirschman, old Harvard political scientist who's long passed, but in 1971, he wrote a book about this and the idea that there's these dynamics. You can express your 
yourself, use voice within a system to try to change it. That doesn't work. You can build something new, try to exit and enter a new system. And then of course there's loyalty. It's like, I can't change it. So I'm just gonna remain loyal to it out of some nostalgia or whatever. For me, subversive innovation is really about creating opportunities for exit. And that's social evolution goes back to the idea of, as you put mm -hmm. it earlier, forking the code. How can yeah, we yeah. fork the socioeconomic code? Uh, what I was thinking of the idea about social evolution, what I was thinking of is how humans cooperate, right? Human beings have a survival instinct to pass your genes on to someone else, reproduce. And we use cooperation with other people to further our individual goals, right? So we sometimes define collective goals or group goals if we believe, or if it's a norm that says that helps us further our own evolutionary goals. And it's a very interesting, we have developed very interesting technologies to do this social evolution and allowed us from evolving from very small social groups that were just basically tribes below the Dunbar number, 150, to much larger scale civilizations that used means such as a common language, such as money, such as irrigation systems, where at the core of many early large scale civilizations or agriculture, right? So social evolution is this process for coordinating a large number of human beings or of civilizations, right? So I think it's very interesting to have that concept, to think of the tools that we can use to improve the collective output of us as a species, right? Or to basically further human progress and human flourishing. Yeah, absolutely. That resonates with me deeply. And let me give you an example. I think what we have now is a social, a set of social structures that have become normalized over the last hundred years, less than a hundred years, really. But we think of them as, as absolutely central to the way we live and work. And that is the living under the auspices and under the reality of the, what you might call the welfare warfare state. Okay. <clears throat> the welfare state being okay the quote unquote social contract is that the government exists to help people. And then the other side of that is the, the government exists to protect people. And now you have this dual narrative of the purported dual functions of the government, right? And what this has done is caused us to outsource our sense of compassion and responsibility for our neighbors and for each other in a really strong tribal evolutionary sense that we would have to look after each other, sub Dunbar, that we can somehow outsource that to distant capitals or distant powers who we have told ourselves are responsible for it and allows us to no longer feel responsible for those deeply human traits. Prior to, let's say, the 1930s in the United States, 1930s, when the Great Depression, and this is also true in Europe, particularly, ironically, some of the anarcho-syndicalists in France, but also the, the members of the friendly societies in, in Britain, there was an, just this vast decentralized empire of mutual aid societies in, dotted around the United States and Europe. There are also these kinds of mutual aid arrangements all over the world in other cultures. Japan has one to go back to the Middle Ages. 
England, the English have mutual aid structures that go back to the Middle Ages. It's profound the way that people would weave their own social safety nets. And so the sort of the binary, the false binary that's been presented is that if you don't vote for this party that administers this vast welfare state upon which all of these apparatchiks sit and siphon a bit before they get redistributed to people who are purportedly in need in exchange for votes, that system, if you deviate from that system, that just means you're greedy. You're greedy and you don't, you hate the poor. That's the accusation. And what I'm arguing is that if we really were socially evolved or in tune with our own proclivities as human beings, we would find that we are much more likely, not just sub Dunbar, but to be even in excess of 150, to be far more communitarian. If we could just show up to the local town hall and see the effects of whatever policy had, even if it weren't private charity or private mutual aid, fraternities or sororal arrangements, these these structures were completely destroyed in the 20th century by the welfare warfare state. And so now it exists, we exist in this, and I believe it has actually enhanced our greed as people. All that's left was once you take the mutual aid sector out of the market and you, then you're giving people to the opportunity to outsource their sense of responsibility to others, to these distant capitals. And you say, I voted, that's my responsibility to take care of the poor. I voted for this team. You can't try your tier cry your teardrop in the ocean and you expect the tide to turn, but nobody wants to work together in their communities to really lift up the poor. And that's what it would take. That's the kind of communitarian, real communitarian efforts that I advocate for in this idea of nicheification and indeed localism. I think we could form some of these structures locally, even if they're varying degrees of socialist or this or that, whatever you want to call it, managed commons. Uh, the, the more localized these commons are, the more easy, the easier they are to manage. And this is a lesson that comes out of the likes of Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom, who warned against these massive bureaucracies of environmental protection or welfare or whatever, that you got to keep it local, at the very least keep it local. We have talked ourselves into to believing that we're greedy and that to not be greedy, we have to be political instead of communitarian. And I think that's very sad. Yeah. Resonates with me to think of sub Dunbar socialism is kind of what we're evolved to do, right? And it can work quite Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And above that, when you deal with other humans in the abstract, right? So when you have pooled resources with people that you don't know or see, that mechanism. I think we know very much from history doesn't work, right? So you need to use technologies like, like money, like for-profit organizations, things like that. Some of which we know do work and how they, and I guess the question is how to provide many of these public goods that we need as a larger scale society to function if we need them at all. And I'd like to talk a bit about the concept of, or the idea of Ronald Coase or the theory of the firm to help us dig a bit further into that question. Can you talk about that? Sure. I actually think something you said earlier really stuck out to me and coast popped into my mind when you said it, you're talking about switching costs, jurisdiction, switching costs and trying to come up with a model for that. 
I think one one lens through which we can see between and among jurisdictions or in and out of the cloud cloud jurisdiction versus versus some legacy jurisdiction is is a Kosian question, right? And I'll talk about that in in terms of Kosis theory of the firm. The idea of the Kosis theory of the firm, Kosis wanted to know why don't we organize ourselves purely in terms of markets? Why do we create these these firms or organizations that organize as hierarchies situated in certain times and place. And his answer to that was transactions cost. What, how much does it cost? What do you need to transact with? What is the firm owner, owners? What do they need to get people to work for the firm? They need them to be in proximity so they can come to work every day. There needs to be a certain level of security so that you can plan into the future. All of these have to do with transaction costs that that couldn't really very readily be undertaken in some traditional market arrangement. With the advent of certain kinds of technological means, whether that's changes in the kind of internal operating systems to an organization for, away from traditional hierarchies to say holacracy or sociocracy or any of these other organizational forms that allow a more distributed set of decision-making among the participants in that firm, changes in the ownership structure to resemble more cooperatives and things like that. There are just a lot of really interesting innovations that are being tried and are actually succeeding in changing the dynamic, the Kosian dynamic. It's not to say Kos is wrong. It's just to say that Kos would say, yep, you have used technology, whether that's the technology, the management technology of holacracy or the, or the actual technology of blockchain to instantiate a DAO, that these new forms lower transaction costs on some dimension. As we discover these technological and philosophical even means of arranging ourselves for some mission, where mission is the important piece in this, we will start to see changes in transaction costs, i.e. they will be reduced on net. Like over time, transaction costs come down. And with that, the dynamics of how organizations form and behave are going to evolve. That is a huge piece of, in my mind, of social evolution, is the change in protocols that reduce transaction costs. That is absolutely vital to social change. And I think it is a vector, an underappreciated vector of social change that not only structures like self-management or holacracy are even possible, but demonstrate that the world really doesn't need as many bosses as it has. Let me give you my own interpretation of Coase and why I find it so helpful to use that framework. So Coase is speaking about for-profit firms. That's important. Right, you have competitive market pressures to find the best methods of production and of organizing the firm, right? Mm -hmm. And then basically you have both decentralization and centralization pressures to use kind of the modern language. A lot of people talk about decentralization. Centralization is economies of scale, it's efficiency. So for example, accounting or centralized purchasing, right? So if you have one entity that purchases larger amounts, like millions of a certain good, like a chip or whatever input factors you need for your production, it's much better to get price discounts, right? So there are many functions within a firm that benefit from these economies of scale from being larger. 
at the same time, there are decentralization pressures, right? So for example, when you get big as a company, you can't care too much about local demands, right? About specific niche demands. Because if 99 customers wanted like that, the other wants it differently as a large firm, it's the transaction costs are too high for you to change the product to the needs of that particular person, right? So that means as a local competitor, as a smaller firm, you might be better able to cater to these specific or these niche demands, right? So put these two centralization and decentralization pressure together under a competitive situation, let's firm be at their optimal size. They're as big as needed to exploit economies of scale, but small enough to plan effectively to cater to the customer demand that they have. And rid themselves of information problems, information exactly. through, through mm -hmm. chains of hierarchy and so on. You can get information breakdown. Exactly. Yeah. My point with that is that there's not only decentralization pressures, there's also centralization pressures, right? So for some things, it does make sense to have bundles that are provided by organization, right? Yeah. I would say I have been, I'm very sanguine about DAOs, mm -hmm. but I am not so sanguine about DAOs to think that they can re completely replace certain aspects of the firm. Um, I think the dynamics you're talking about, these cosine dynamics you're referring to, just too many aspects of DAOs that now there could be innovations that come up. I've heard about fractalized DAOs and uh, subsidiary, uh, you know, DAOs that that have subsidiary functions and so on. But that's just starting to look like more like a firm, right? I mean, it's starting to become more hierarchical and so on. If you could build a holocratic organization on a DAO instead of on Glass Frog, that's great. But these kinds of these kinds of Cosian and Super Dunbar dynamics. I have to do with both information and the way information is transmitted around the firm and the quality of that information being retained in certain for certain kinds of decision making and use on the part of the decision makers wherever they are in the firm that those are going to have to, we have to slavishly pay attention to that currently for example DAOs require too much time input it, it, when people just have a fractionalized way of make, making decisions they can't sit around and, and govern within a DAO, not everything can be a vote or a, what is a, what is his Alex Tabarrok's, I love this model. I think it's interesting. Dominant assurance contracts. So it's like Kickstarter, a Kickstarter thing where you have skin in the game to try to make decisions for the development of like public, private provision of public goods, right? Yeah. Tabarrok really solved that problem, but that's not, that, that can't be the only kind of governance and in the, in, within a firm. And in fact, the allocation of quasi-private property is really one of the best ways is to say, okay, you're held accountable to your specific role within the organization, but you have property rights in that role. So you're, if you're jamming, the evolutionary process is going to favor you. If you're not jamming, it's going to eventually, it's going to push you out of the organization because you're not creating value. And the protocols around that are really important to holacracy, for example. Yeah. One, one thing that I think is important to think about in the DAO space is what can DAOs do that Delaware companies can do already? What Robin Hansen would point out if, if he was here was, hey, many of the things that would make firms more efficient, like prediction markets or giving better incentives and rewards and equity 
we can already do that with Delaware companies, right? I think that should invite us to think, well, where do DAOs improve on it? One thing I would point out, for example, is employee share options, which is something where the transaction costs are currently very high, which I think sort of the tokenization model is hugely valuable, right? Because the existing employee mm. share options required a lot of contract work and lawyers and a lot of education on behalf of the individual on how to cash out on these options and things like that. Yeah. And look, I, I'm not super high on, for example, there's some of these organizations that are really scratching someone's Marxist itch. I mean, what Marx really hated was the capitalists, right? The idea that these workers were slaves to the capitalist, slaves as it were, right? But not only does the Coase transaction cost argument push back against the Marxist idea, there's a lot of things that push back against the Marxist idea, including the idea of expertise and risk. So I am, while I'm usually bashing against experts in most days, I understand also that the internal to firms, people have sets of expertise that make them particularly good at their roles. And even in traditional firms, executives or successful executives tend to be good decision makers, right? And those that aren't, their firms die. So we have this selection mechanism that brings in all people that the, the basically the mark provi market provides all of these CEOs as good decision makers, or at least people who surround themselves by executive teams who are good decision makers or good at giving them counsel. I, I do think that that works to an extent in the traditional model, but the complexity science also tells us that there are theoretical limits to that, that after a time, the complexity of information makes it more and more difficult for executive teams to make good decisions because they're dealing with complex systems. And so you need to have distributed decision-making power based on certain specific subsets of the complex totality. That is the decentralization pressure in the firm that you were talking about earlier, at least in my mind. So that push and pull of centralization for economies of scale, decentralization for overcoming information problems, that's always going to be at work, no matter, no matter what situation we're in, even as technology makes more and more decentralization possible. Yeah. I'd like to keep a bit further going more on that point because many of our listeners are also entrepreneurs and are probably thinking, should I do a DAO or not? Talk a bit more about hierarchy, right? So you mentioned holacracy before. Can you distinguish between different types of hierarchy to introduce the concept of holacracy? Yeah, I think so. One way of talking about this is to distinguish between what you might call organic hierarchies or hierarchies of competence and formal hierarchies or hierarchies of domination. So <clears throat> traditional firms are usually a hybrid of dominance hierarchies. Governments are just straight up do dominance hierarchies, right? They tell you what to do, you do it. If you don't, men with guns in jails will come and get you, right? That's, that's the way governments work. Corporations, they do tend to succeed when they have good decision-making makers in the highest echelons, but those tend to be formalized over time. So there's a, it's a hybrid. And as these firms suffer more and more information problems, or they become unable to turn on a dime against a, a leaner, more competitive upstart, 
you'll start to see the firm can't turn quickly. It can't change quickly because of it's its own under its own weight of its own bureaucracy and its own internal information processing issues. That holacracy is a is does not completely dispatch with hierarchy, but instead treats it given the you'll you'll hear the root holon, the root of holacracy is holon. And a whole on is a system within a system, a nested subsystem, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So with holacracy, what you get is <clears throat> people occupying roles based on their competence. And that will manifest itself sometimes as subsystems in which people will turn to them for their expertise or request something. And that creates a dynamic or organic hierarchy, but it is not a formalized hierarchy. It is a hierarchy of competence rather than one of threat, where you threaten someone with their job if they don't do what they're told to execute the task, right? It's rather, I need this person to collaborate with me so that we can be successful together to serve the mission. And sometimes that means that there are people who are paid more because they're more competent. If you sweep the floors and work in a holocratic organization, there's still, people still aren't going to come to you for decision-making power on important strategic decisions of the entire firm, right? So there might be a strategic subcircle or, su or holon within a holocratic organization that deals with strategy. And usually those are peopled with good decision makers or good strategists. Some holocratic organizations don't have a strategic function, which is really interesting, but that's separate. They're almost entirely evolutionary in the way they work, but some do. And the, but the basic distinction that you asked for, I think, is this distinction between leadership hierarchies where you turn to those in, in order to benefit the entire the corpus of the organization in service of the mission or formalized hierarchies where you say if you don't do it you're out yeah i'm thinking a lot about that question and there's multiple things going to my head one is that's a bit skeptical of holacracy as a concept I mean, the idea is that we have more competition or competition is putting the most competent people in the right to the right level of decision-making. So the right level of like what the resources they can decide on and things like that. Right. That's part in both of the idea. Traditional hierarchies or of holacracy? Of holacracy. Right. It's not yeah. that there is no decision-makers, right? There is decision-makers, right. but some more flexible structure with the intention to bring the ones who have the most informal competence into a position where they can make the decisions. Yes, I think, that's, with them. I think that's accurate. Yeah. One thing that I'm doubtful about is in any organization that you're in or any startup, the most scarce factor is talent, right? And is leadership. So I've never seen an organization that's not starved for it. We quickly tend to think, oh, the way these organizations are run, all these hierarchies, all the formalities, those are, well, holding people down from becoming leaders in the first place, right? But I'm not sure that's true. I, the way I've seen it actually and experienced it, as many entrepreneurs, many founders and CEOs and decision makers desperately crave more people to step up and are constantly thinking of ways to do that. So I'm not sure we haven't already tried a lot when it comes to empowering people in organizations, right? There is a reason that people join an organization, which is that they get a bundle, right? Someone else is thinking of the bundle that they get, the benefits, the steady work hours and things like that. 
And if they wanted greater autonomy, they might as well start their own organization or their own company, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge cheerleader for self-management structures, whether it's Morningstar self-management, which I've worked and used, worked under and used in my life, or the, or Holacracy, I'm, I'm happen to be friends with Brian Robertson. So I'm who's, who founded Holacracy one, and I'm biased in this regard. But what I would say is that, is that Holacracy does allow you to unleash the visionaries for their particular roles where there sometimes are issues with the rank and file, not uh, of feeling unable to express themselves or to make certain kinds of decisions or have autonomy. But what I wouldn't argue is that in each and every case, holacracy is the preferable form. And in fact, sometimes hierarchies are just fine. In fact, sometimes people want to work in hierarchies because they simply want to get a paycheck for executing tasks and to not have to think, right? So it depends on the organization and it depends on the evolutionary fitness landscape in which, or the business environment that these firms find themselves in, whether or not holacracy is more or less appropriate or self-management is more or less appropriate. There are certainly pathologies to all forms of organization because we're all human beings. And the net effect of all this is, is almost tautological, which is life is full of trade-offs and organization theories involve trade-offs as well. The question is, which of those trade-offs is the most beneficial and detrimental to your organization? And your choice of the institutional framework for that organization is going to be determined by those certain, certain kinds of circumstances. So yeah, like I, I don't think Elon Musk could have come into Twitter on day one and said, okay, we're going to be holocratic, particularly since it takes a lot of time for people to become trained in holacracy. It's easy. It's a low cost thing just to take orders rather than to learn how to use these processes and protocols that holacracy requires. I wouldn't argue that, that these structures are the be all end all, but I do think uh, we need a lot more experimentation with them because they can really unlock human potential in ways that we haven't, yeah. we don't always see. Yeah. Yeah. And I also tend to. When it comes to DAOs, what I mentioned before about tokenization and employee share options, for example, I think that could provide an opportunity to provide employees more easily and more flexibly with equity and then see how they decide, right? I think that makes experimentation easier and less costly when it comes to organizations. So DAOs, I think are, you know, I heard this debates about managerial versus bourgeois capitalism, right? In bourgeois capitalism, you had founder owners of organizations, whereas in managerial capitalism, you have managers who are running the firm, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the concept- They're, they're tomorrow's bureaucrats. Max, anything else you'd like to talk about? Do you want to talk more about your work on the shadow constitution? Yeah, that'd be great. We can mm -hmm. spend another five minutes on that. I'd be delighted. Mm -hmm. It's very early still. And one of the sort of the punchlines of the new book, Underthrow, is, is an invitation for more and more people to join with me in solidarity around, around this, this idea of a shadow society. And the, the general idea is that the phase one would be that we commit as signatories to a new societal form, 
which would have a new social operating system, a shadow constitution. And that commitment situates us both symbolically and otherwise to, to some directionality for how we can live together as a human community that is far more Satoshi than it is Stalin <laughs> okay, or China, current China. That, that effort, I do dread it because I think it's going to be a lot of work, but it starts, you got to take the first step. And I think a network state phenomenon instantiated in this shadow society will allow people who share sensibilities like you, I, like you and me and others who might share our sensibilities as listeners can opt into this human community and start doing some work around figuring out the institutional protocols for what comes next and embracing those protocols and trying to instantiate them in the world. That's, it's going to take a lot, but, and a lot of people are going to be skeptical when they listen to that, but consider this operating in legal gray areas first, and then, and then having to protect this new form, whatever this new society is, has precedent. We're all aware that in 2000, 2011, it would be crazy. The idea that you would hitch a ride, that people would hitch a ride with other people to the degree that they do now would be crazy. And yet in 2012, 2013, Uber entered into a legal gray area, fashioned a, te a technology that allowed people to matchmake drivers and riders to have a high degree of transparency and tracking and safety and identity, and that this enabled the complete sea change, a rapid constituency to a form that has done, has gone a long way to undo the taxi cartels, which are government designated cartels. No one would have thought that this was even possible in 2010, 2011, but Uber made it possible. Now, Uber's not decentralized all, all the way down the stack and there's highly centralized company that has become one of the one of the examples of management capitalism that you mentioned earlier just as a proof of concept i'm using uber but not its current iteration it's, it's just a big centralized company like anything else now that being said there was also the tw the 2009 white paper we've already alluded to that shows showed what was possible and that began to challenge the existing financial orthodoxy and, and the shenanigans of central banks. Its very existence represents a challenge to that, causes people to call that into that order into question, where before they were just swimming in it as if it were the sea and that's all there ever was. Now we go, wait, it could be otherwise. That is the first step to bringing down Leviathan powers that in to my mind and to the minds of people I'm looking to in, to form solidarity with, are unjustifiable. I'm becoming, I'm getting more and more serious and I would love to invite anyone who's curious about forming a shadow society and the sort of steps in the process that I'm currently working on now to arrive at a shadow constitution, would have that symbolic power and that idea that we're forking the code from the US constitution. I'm speaking to someone who's a, a native German, that may sound a little strange, but it's for me, I, it's, as much about patriotism as latching on to something in people's minds that they're familiar with and, and dedicate that can dedicate themselves to because of their sympathies. And hopefully what can come out of it can borrow from other constitutions around the world, other ideas, 
and other means. That would, I believe, give us an important foundation for a shadow society that could have one day millions of adherents. But until that day, I want to invite folks to write me at max at social-evolution.com if they're interested in working with me on this. Next, this was a fascinating conversation about social organization, about the evolution of human um, behavior and cooperation. I love that we were able to go so deep in so many, to so many interesting directions and putting some ideas out there that are hopefully relevant to some of our listeners, to entrepreneurs about how to bring change about, how to organize themselves, how to organize their companies, and maybe also to become part of the shadow society that Max is starting. So feel free to reach out to Max if that inspires you as much as it does me. Max, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Niklas. And next Mal machen wir alles in Deutschen. Yeah? Next Mal is auf Deutsch, gerne. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>